Well, first of all, I want to begin by saying a special welcome to those who are here with us for the first or nearly the first time. It's always a strange kind of experience to visit a, a new church and and uh, you can kind of not feel like you're in your own skin. And so we just want to extend a welcome to you and express gratefulness that you're here among us. It is sweet to be a part of the body of Christ. It's just very uh, exciting to be a part of what God is doing in human history. And, um, and now that uh, even though we have not met before, we are on the same mission together, which is to advance the Great Commission. So welcome. It's good to have you. But I want to begin by saying that Maybe you've never heard this before, but I just want you to know that the book of Daniel is, in many ways, the battleground of the Bible. It's really true. The book of Daniel is, in many ways, the battleground of the Bible. What I mean is, the contents within the book of Daniel are so important, so significant, so crucial to the rest of Scripture that if Daniel could be proven to be fraudulent or fake the rest of the Bible would literally come unraveled. Now, that's probably true about any book of the Bible, but that's especially true about Daniel. And the reason for that, listen carefully, the reason for that is because contained in the book of Daniel are prophecies and predictions about things hundreds of years in the future before they ever even came to pass. And in fact, there are things that the book of Daniel predicts that still have not even happened yet. We are still awaiting the fulfillment of some of the things predicted in the book of Daniel. And so if you could somehow prove that the predictions in the book of Daniel were late insertions after the fact, if you could prove that the event already happened, but the writer made it look like that he predicted it, the rest of the Bible would literally begin to come unraveled. Let's put it this way. You lose Daniel, you lose everything. You lose Daniel, you lose everything. I'm not even kidding. You begin to lose the entirety of the Christian faith if the book of Daniel is some fiction cooked up by overactive imaginations. And again, the reason for that is because contained in this book is not only the Messiah, but the death the second coming, and the very kingdom of Jesus Christ himself. That's big. That's really, really big. This is not a small thing. This book is not merely the heartwarming tale of a few teens who stood against a godless and pagan culture. No, what this is is a book profoundly concerned with Jesus Christ and the very plan of salvation itself, which means the stakes are so high when we're talking about prophecy and the book of Daniel. And having said that, I, I don't want you to be alarmed this morning. I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to be worried at all because you don't have a thing to be worried about, a book, about the book of Daniel because the prophecies in the book are real and true and valid and credible and trustworthy and hauntingly relevant for your lives. Which is surprising, isn't it? It's surprising that, that prophecy could have anything actually practical for your lives. Because think about the book of Daniel. Think about the things that are contained in this book. Creepy statues. Kings with dementia. Floating hands. Scribbling graffiti on a wall. Four-headed leopards. Horns that have eyes that say dirty words. I mean, there's, this book doesn't seem to have anything actually relevant and practical to your life. To which I reply... 
you'll see. You'll see. You'll see, I hope. That prophecy isn't just some topic that tickles our imaginations. No, prophecy is a means of survival. (laughs) You see, what prophecy is designed to produce in your lives is holiness, hope, courage, and perseverance, even in the most godless and profane of cultures, even if it was just you alone by yourself against the entire world, prophecy empowers you to live in a way, to live and die in a way that puts Jesus Christ on display. That's how big this is. And you see, the thing about Daniel chapter two is that it contains the first of many prophecies in this book, the first major prophecy in the book. And I just want you to know the thing about this prophecy is that it, A, comes in the form of a dream. B, it comes in a dream to the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. And C, it is a prophecy about the end of history and how the world is going to (laughs) end. You remember the scene. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, the most powerful man in the entire world at the time, he has a nightmare and it really, really freaks him out because he knows that this dream is a message. This, this, it's a message and, and something about the dream told him that it was news and the news was not particularly good, at least for him. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? You remember he calls his, his team of sorcerers and wizards and, and fortune tellers and to come in and to figure out the dream, but they don't have anything. They can't figure anything out. They have not a clue about this dream. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? He blows his top. He he absolutely loses it, orders that all the wise men in the kingdom be executed, which includes, as you know, Daniel and his comrades. But you remember, God comes through in the middle of the night, reveals the dream to Daniel, who tells it to the king, and in so doing, spills the beans on God's plan for history. So I just want you to know that this chapter that we're going to see over the next two weeks, which is filled with prophecy, by the way, that it is profoundly practical for your lives. It is. And yet, I just need to know, you need you to know, I mean, you're not going to hear five keys for better friendships. There'll be no tips here on how to improve your marriage, no advice on how to parent your kids, no, no game plan for how to get out of debt. But what you will get, what you will get is a glorious vision of a sovereign God who governs everything that comes to pass. And that is exactly what you need to handle anything in your lives at this very moment. So here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text three reasons. I love adjectives, so let's call it three compelling reasons. Three compelling reasons why God is a treasure to be trusted and prized both here and into eternity. That's where we're headed. Three compelling reasons why God is a treasure to be trusted and prized both here and into eternity. That's where we're headed. I have notes that should be on your notes there. And yet, here's the thing. Before we see any one of those reasons, what I want us to do is go back in time. 2,700 years, 7,000 miles away to the cold sweat of a king who just had a dream about the end of the world. Let's begin first with the dream and the crazy demand. The dream and the crazy demand, verses 1 through 13. 
Now, here's the thing. We, we call it a dream, but what it really was was a nightmare. The drama begins to unfold in verse 1. Look at the text. And in the second year of the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar dreamed dreams, and his spirit was disturbed, and his sleep fled from him. Isn't that interesting? The second year of his reign, early on in his career, enjoying the high life as the heavyweight champion of the Middle East, no doubt feeling bulletproof and invincible because of his many and recent military victories, all of the sudden, God begins to stir. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. And again, it's not really a dream, more like a nightmare, maybe even like a night terror, because as we're about to see, whatever this dream was, his spirit was disturbed. What's really interesting, that word disturbed in the Hebrew literally has the idea of banging metal with a hammer. The dream is so intense, so terrifying that he laid awake the rest of his night, his heart pounding in his chest like metal, banging in an empty warehouse. No wonder he couldn't go back to sleep. Because somehow Nebuchadnezzar knew, he just knew that what this dream was, was a message. This wasn't just your average nightmare. No, this dream meant something and it meant something to him. And the way he seemed to perceive it, it wasn't good news for him. So here's nervous Nebuchadnezzar, tossing and turning all night, heart, mind like a tornado, heart like a banging hammer. And at the crack of dawn, he immediately begins to seek for answers. Look at verse 2. And the king commanded to bring, to call all of the magicians and conjurers and sorcerers and Chaldeans to declare to the king his dreams. And they came and they stood before the king. So you see what Nebuchadnezzar does here, right? As soon as possible, he calls a staff meeting. And at this particular staff meeting, who does he call? Well, for this particular kind of emergency and in a pagan kingdom steeped in idolatry and superstition, you call your dream squad, your crack team of wizards and conjurers and sorcerers and fortune tellers. And, 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 you, know, it, and you have to understand, this was big business in Babylon. You remember in chapter one, they had a school, they had an institute for this kind of stuff. They had a university that taught these guys how to do this stuff, which is the very same school that Daniel and his comrades graduated, by the way. Not that they practiced this kind of garbage, but they were part of the larger school university of Babylon, which taught wisdom. And see, history even seems to indicate that there were hundreds, maybe even thousands who were part of this guild. They had their own department in the kingdom. They even had their own office building, it sounds like, in the capital city of Babylon. You have to understand that witchcraft and sorcery and fortune-telling and dream interpretation was as normal in Babylon as bus drivers and school teachers and construction workers are today. And at the end of verse 2, they they show up to the meeting and they stand before the king. And verse 3, Nebuchadnezzar states the purpose of the meeting kind of goes like this. Uh, Look, guys, um, the reason why I called you here this morning was because last night I had a dream. And my spirit is very disturbed within me. I am kind of freaking out right now about this dream, and I very much need to know what this dream means, and I want you to tell me what it means. To which they reply in verse 4, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will make known the interpretation. 
And that's the standard protocol for these kinds of situations. The king has a dream. He calls his crack team of wizards in. They, he tells them the dream. They break. They go to the library. They hit the books. They study. They come up with an interpretation of the dream. They come back with the interpretation. They give him an interpretation which flatters the king and caters to his pride. And voila, they have a pay raise and a promotion. Everybody wins. Not today. Not today. And obviously, I don't need to tell you that this whole business of dream interpretation with their tarot cards and their, and their horoscopes, I mean, obviously, no one needs to tell you this is an absolute joke. This is a complete sham. I and mean, this was a total hoax. This whole thing was a facade. These, these clowns with their tea leaves and their, and their crystal balls were nothing more than just a bunch of palm readers at the state fair. I mean, this was absolutely worthless. And yet, these guys had incredible job security in their, in their position of dream interpretation. And yet today, both their jobs and their lives would be on the line. So here they are, sitting around the conference table, cross-legged pens and notebooks in hand, ready to hear the dreams so that they could get to work. But you see, again, the, today the assignment was going to be a little different. Today they would face a particular challenge on this project that would not only exceed their abilities, but would even put their very lives in jeopardy. Look at verses 5 and 6. I mean, this thing goes from zero to dangerous in seconds. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me literally is irrevocable. In other words, what I'm about to say to you, I'm not going to change my mind. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be dismembered. And your houses shall be turned into a rubbish heap. But if you make known the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive gifts and presents and great majesty from before me. Therefore, make known to me the dream and its interpretation. Do so you see that? It, it, it's not business as usual in Babylon, is it? See, again, these guys are used to hearing the dream first. Then they give the interpretation. Today, the rules are different. Again, look at what Nebuchadnezzar says. It says, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be dismembered. I'm going to turn your houses into a rubbish heap. I mean, you realize what he's doing, right? I mean, you realize what this is. I'm not going to tell you the dream. I'm not going to tell you the dream I had inside my head last night. I want you to tell me the dream, then give me the interpretation. I want the dream and the interpretation. And if you don't, I'm going to have your body parts ripped off and I'm going to have your houses turned into a public bathroom. That's actually the term in the Aramaic. It's, it's literally their houses would be turned into a public sewer. The flip side is they pull this off. They tell him the dream and its interpretation. They would get gifts and presents and literally great majesty, which means they would climb the ladder of the Babylonian government and get a pay raise. I mean, those are their options. Their only options. And so Nebuchadnezzar was, as they say, making them an offer they couldn't refuse. And see, what this does is raise the question, right? Why change the rules? 
Why change the rules? Why all of a sudden did he make this outrageous demand that not only did they have to give them the interpretation, he, they had to give him the very dream he had in his head the night before. Why did he change the rules? This is outrageous. This is crazy. No one, thankfully, can see the dream that anyone else has in their head the night before. I mean, that, that's impossible. But you see, the reason why he did do it this way was fear. It was fear. See, whatever this thing was he saw inside his head in his dream rocked him to his very core. Because you see, he, he, see, he woke up that morning with a midlife crisis. He unbuttoned his pajamas that morning with his hands trembling because he knew, he just knew that somehow this dream was a message. This nightmare meant something and he had to find out what it was. And so the only way that he could guarantee that they had the right interpretation was if they could tell him the dream he had inside his head first because if they could do that, then he could trust that they had the right interpretation. It's pretty airtight logic. And, and here's the thing, this demand of Nebuchadnezzar, if you really think about it, this, this thing that he's demanding of them, this is actually pretty reasonable. It really is. I mean, it, what I mean is, if these wizards and these conjurers and these fortune tellers really had access to the spirit world like they claimed, they should have been able to do this. I mean, technically speaking, if they really truly had the powers that they pretended to have, I mean, this is perfectly reasonable, which means failure to recount the dream and give the interpretation means that the entire religious system of Babylon was bankrupt, which of course it was. And so is anything else to which we look outside of Christ and his word. See, anything to which we look outside of Christ in his word to solve the deepest dilemmas of this life is little different than us calling a psychic hotline. What I mean is, how many marriage problems, how many parenting issues, how many sin struggles, how many complex issues of the soul, how many major life decisions do we make in this life outside of the truth of God's word? How many major life decisions do we make based on our feelings or our emotions or our crystal balls of intuition? I mean, why do we just assume that secular psychology has the corner on the deepest issues, the deepest complexities of the human soul? Why do we assume that they have the answers? Because to be sure, the self-help wizards and shamans of our day, the motivational speakers that tell us to believe in ourselves, all that the world feeds us about phobias and disorders and addictions. All I'm saying is, the word of God alone has the power to cure the most tangled complexities of the human soul. You literally have in your possession a bottomless ocean of life-changing power and wisdom. And the more you get this book absorbed into the very bloodstream of your soul, the more your lives will begin to change. 
But you see, these, these fortune tellers and, and wizards with whom Nebuchadnezzar consulted, they didn't have anything. They had zero answers. And you can tell in verse 7. Look what it says. They answered a second time and said, let the king make known to his servants the dream, then we shall declare to you the interpretation. Did you notice? They don't even acknowledge the king's demand. They, they, either, either what he said was so weird that they didn't get it, or they pretend like they didn't hear him just ask them to give him the dream and the interpretation, and maybe they're hoping that he'll forget and just accidentally tell them the dream anyway. Either way, they are doomed, and the king begins to look, lose his patience. Look at verse 8. The king answered and said, Surely I know all you're trying to do here, you're trying to buy time. You're trying to buy yourself some time, aren't you? Because you see that the word from me is irrevocable. In other words, quit stalling. Either you can do this, or you can't. And if you can't, you know what's going to happen to you, verse 9. But, but, you've got one more chance here. Tell me the dream, then I shall know that you are able to make known the interpretation. In verse 10, they begin to panic. No doubt with hands trembling and voices quivering, quivering they, they begin to make their excuses to the king. Look, look at what they say. The Chaldeans answered before the king and said, there is not a man on the earth who is able to do what the king is asking. Because every great and mighty king does not ask such a thing of his magicians and conjurers and Chaldeans. In other words, do you see their protest? Ah, uh, king, you have got to be kidding here. There is no one on the face of the planet who can do what you're asking. Furthermore, there has never been a king in the history of the world who has ever asked this of his wizards and magicians. And so please, your majesty, we beg your pardon, but you're being ridiculous. And you see, I find the most curious comment come out of their mouths at the end of verse 11. It's very interesting to me. Look at what they say. O king, no one can do what you're asking. Here it is. Except the gods who do not dwell with mortal flesh. <gasps> do you see that? What do they mean? It means they knew their gods were never going to help them. <laughs> see, they had no room in their theology for God to dwell with men, did they? They had no concept in their theology for a God who gave a rip enough to come to earth and dwell among men. That was completely foreign to them. They had no concept, no room in their theology for an incarnation, but we have room for that in our theology, don't we? We have room in our theology for an incarnation. Why? Because that is exactly what happened. Because our God, the very second person of the Trinity himself, he did that very thing. He gave a rip about humanity. And he came to this very planet that he created as a literal, historical human being. And he revealed, get this, he revealed the deepest secrets in the universe. The meaning of of life, how to cheat death, <laughs> what satisfies the soul. Are you kidding? Every single thing we could possibly need or ask for is located in the God who came to earth wrapped in mortal flesh. 
And yet, yet despite their sound objections, the problem is Nebuchadnezzar is not a reasonable man. And frankly, he was not used to being talked to in this way by his subordinates, and, and they're refusing to do what he's asking. And so verse 12, he blows his top and comes unglued, goes ballistic, like scary angry. The kind of anger that makes you fear for your very life because, look at verse 12, and he commanded to kill all of the wise men of Babel. That word kill in the Aramaic literally means to slaughter. It means to exterminate. That's it. That's it. Everybody dies. Every prophet, every sage, every wise man, every conjurer, every fortune teller, every wizard in the whole kingdom is to be arrested and killed effective immediately. Think about it. Nebuchadnezzar is going to wipe out the entire religious department of the whole kingdom in one day. Why? Why so extreme? Why, why so over the top? I mean, he's not just going to kill the guys that are in the room and then call in another batch of guys. He wants everybody to die. Why? Because A, he saw the bankruptcy of the entire Babylonian religious system, and B, it reveals just how serious and scared he was by the dream. He was angry because he was terrified, and so everybody dies. And here's the rub. Guess whose names were also on the kill list? That's right, verse 13. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And what this means is God is going to have to come through, isn't he? God is going to have to respond. God is going to have to deliver. God is going to have to, the sovereign God of the universe is going to have to intervene in their lives, which brings us next to the danger in intervention of God. Next in your notes, the danger in intervention of God, verses 14 through 23. Obviously, the situation is urgent here, right? Not just for Daniel, but for Hundreds, maybe even for a couple thousand of, of these guys who are part of the religious wisdom guild in Babylon. And, and yet, even though arrest warrants have been issued, even though the executioners are probably sharpening their swords as we speak, look what begins to unfold in verses 14 and 15. It's very interesting. It just cuts to a new scene. It says, then Daniel gave advice and counsel to Arioch, chief of the bodyguards of the king who went out to kill the wise men of Babel. Daniel answered and said to Arioch, the mighty one of the king, why is the decree from the king literally so severe? Then Arioch made known to Daniel the situation. Now this is really interesting here because all of a sudden the scene just cuts to a conversation between Daniel and the very man responsible for killing the wise men of Babel. I mean, what is this, minutes later? Hours later? I don't know. But all of a sudden, Daniel, get this now, is now face to face with the very man responsible for his murder. <laughs> and I know your version calls him something along the lines of Arioch, the, the captain of the king's bodyguard, but that's too that's too G-rated because in the Aramaic, the term, that term uh, bodyguard literally means to butcher. The term means one who butchers meat. He's an executioner. 
He's a hitman. He is a mercenary, a royal contract killer hired by the king. And we know that's what it means because at the end of verse 14, it says that he went out to kill the wise men of Babel. And here's what's really interesting to me here is that the text doesn't say who found who first. Did Daniel approach Arioch first? Or did this conversation happen as Arioch came in with his execution sword, ready to lop off Daniel's head, and then they have this conversation? I don't know. The text doesn't say. But what we do see is the God-given wisdom of Daniel to say the right thing at the right time. Because in verse 14, notice what it says. It says, Daniel literally gave advice and counsel to Arioch. He gave his executioner advice and counsel. At the very least, it means Daniel said the exact right words in the exact right way at the exact right time to prevent a bloodbath in Babylon. And possibly with execution sword in hand, Daniel asked Arioch, why is the decree from the king so severe? And then Arioch proceeds to make known the situation to Daniel. So this is bad. This is really, really bad. And so what does, what does Daniel do? Flee to another country? Go into hiding? Start a protest? Buy a fake mustache and put on a disguise? No, get this. Verse 16 he goes directly to the palace of the king and schedules a meeting for the next day at the time of which he would reveal the dream and the interpretation. Somehow, someway, Daniel knew that the dream Nebuchadnezzar had was from God and that God would reveal the dream to him. And so what this means is Daniel just bought himself and hundreds of other people a little more time before they get their heads lopped off. And so what this means is God is going to have to deliver here. God is going to have to intervene here. God is going to have to come through in the clutch here. He's going to have to reveal to Daniel, think about it, reveal to Daniel the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in his head the night before and its interpretation. So those are their options. God does a miracle or they die. So the question is, what does he do? What does Daniel do? Let's put it this way. What do you do when your backs are against the wall and you have nowhere to turn? How do you respond in your lives when you are put in impossible situations? You are in, in way over your head and the walls are closing in and you have no answers and you have nowhere to turn. How do you respond in high stakes, high pressure situations in which you are powerless to control the situation and its outcome? How do you respond in those situations? Because the reality is, it doesn't matter what we say we believe about God when everything is hunky-dory. Because the true test of our theology and what we actually believe are in situations where we're being squeezed and crushed by situations beyond our control. Just like this. So what does Daniel do? Verse 17 goes to his house, 
makes known to his comrades the entire situation. In verse 18, look what it says they did. It says they gathered together to seek literally compassions, plural, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery in order that they should not be slaughtered with the rest of the wise men of Babel. Here it is. Lives are on the line. Maybe the last night they will ever spend on the planet about to face a gruesome and excruciating and bloody execution. And yet they do exactly what people do who believe in the sovereignty of God. Namely, they pray. They pray and they ask God to intervene and do only what a sovereign God can do, namely the impossible, because that's why prayer exists, you know. Prayer is not some mystical act of piety where we think we hear God's voice. It is the means through which God does the absolutely impossible. Prayer is not for the pious who think they've got it all together. Prayer is for the crippled. Prayer is for the beggars. Prayer is for the bankrupt. Prayer is for the needy. Prayer is what you do when you come to grips with the fact that all we are on our own by ourselves are spiritual cripples and beggars of grace. That is it. That is who we are. And if we have any opinions of ourselves that are higher than that, we are deluding ourselves. Therefore, we pray. Because the reality is, and this is going to sting a little bit, but the reality is we can portray any version that we want of ourselves to the public, but the reality is who we are is who we are on our knees before God in prayer. And I don't know what your prayer life is like right now, may not be satisfying. It may not be urgent. It may not be passionate. It may not be powerful. It may not be persistent. Your prayer life might, might not even be in existence right now. And you know what? That's okay. It's not okay, but it's okay. I don't want you to beat yourselves up because the reality is if you want to improve in prayer, if you want power in prayer, if you want persistence in prayer, if you want perseverance in prayer, if you want passion in prayer, there are three things of which you need to be absolutely convinced. One, you are helpless. Two, God is glorious. And three, prayer is the means through which he displays his glory. That's it. You want to grow in prayer? Those are the three things you have to have just lodged into your mind. You are helpless. God is glorious. Prayer is the means through which he puts his glory on display. Which means the hymn, the hymn is exactly right. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything, I repeat, everything to God in prayer. <laughs> we get the grace. He gets the glory. Everybody wins. 
And so what these Hebrew teenagers needed with their lives on the line, they desperately needed God to intervene, right? And, and I know that you know that God does intervene. Verse 19, he does intervene. But here's my question. Let's toy with this for a second, shall we? What if God doesn't intervene? What if he didn't? What if the scene ended with a violent and gruesome execution with the rest of Babylon's wise men? What if that was the scene? My question is, what changes? What changes? What changes about God's character? What changes about his goodness? What changes about his plan if these guys get executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon? What changes? Nothing. Nothing changes. You know why? Because chapter 12 tells us that at the end of the age, God will resurrect our rotted, decomposed corpses from the grave and rise us from the dead just as if we had never died in the first place. And there we will receive our promised reward and we will inherit the kingdom forever. And what that does is give us holiness and hope and courage and perseverance. What it means is that somehow, some way, every dilemma, every problem, everything in your life that you are flat out not pleased with will be reversed in the end and turned for good. You see, that's the trick of the Christian life. Did you know there's a trick to the Christian life? Here's the trick of the Christian life. We have got to view the little pixels of our lives and we have to view them in the context of the grand plasma screen of God's plan for history. You see, we get fearful, we get anxious, we get angry, we get greedy, we get discontent in our lives simply because we forget that God has a plan and the best is yet to come. Because we know, verse 19, God does in his mercy intervene, doesn't he? God does intervene. And, and even the, the word order of the Aramaic draws out the drama and suspense, putting us on the edge of our seats. Listen to how the Aramaic literally words it in its word order. It's very interesting to me. It says, then to Daniel, in the vision of the night, the mystery was revealed. Ta-da. And Daniel blessed the God of heaven. And you see what this was? This was not a dream. This was a dream-like state, a trance of some sort when God supernaturally downloaded the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in his head the night before directly into Daniel's brain along with the interpretation of the dream. I mean, this is exactly, exactly what the palm readers of Babylon could not do. And so what this means is, what this means is that, is that Daniel and his comrades now had two things they desperately needed. One, they needed, they now had what they needed to spare their lives. Number two, they now had the blueprints of God's plan for history. You know why? 
Because as we're going to see next week, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, this night terror that he had, it was a message. It was a prophecy about how the world is going to end, which includes nothing less, get this, than a global, invincible kingdom on this planet at the end of the age. Which means this dream is not only relevant to Nebuchadnezzar, it is profoundly relevant to us Because mark my words, the finish line of history and your future home is the very kingdom described in the book of Daniel again and again and again. And so what does Daniel do in response? The only appropriate thing there was to do, namely he blesses the living God. Look what it says, verse 20. And it it literally says, Daniel cries out and he says, let the name of God be blessed from eternity until eternity. Let God be blessed forever and ever and ever. Daniel rightly understood that the only appropriate response to the living God was eternal worship and delight. And you have to understand, to bless God is not to give him something that he doesn't already have. Rather, it is to recognize the infinite worth and beauty that he already does have. And so what this brings me now to is three reasons. Three compelling reasons why God is a treasure to be trusted and prized both here and into eternity. Look at your notes, number one. Reason number one, why God is a treasure to be trusted and prized. God is a God of wisdom and power. God is a God of wisdom and power. Look at verse 20. Daniel says, let the name of God be blessed from eternity until eternity. Why? Because the wisdom and the power or the strength belong to him. You see that God is a God of wisdom and power. The wisdom and power belong to God. The question is, what is God's wisdom? What is God's power? Why do these occur together? And why do these matter for your lives? And this, is, this makes perfect sense. You see, wisdom is God's skill by which he crafted his plan. God's power is his ability by which he carries out his plan. In other words, he's both the brains and the brawn of the operation. He's both the genius and the muscle. He not only wrote the script of the play in eternity past, but in real time, he directs every act of that play, governing everything that comes to pass. And what that means is God is absolutely trustworthy for everything that you are encountering in your lives, even at this very moment. The question is, what do you need for the dilemmas that you're facing right now in your lives? I'll tell you what you need. You need God's wisdom and you need God's power. Wisdom to know the right thing to do, power to do the right thing. Tell me I'm wrong. Isn't that what you need? Wisdom and power? So let me just ask you, what what are those things right now in your lives? Because we've all got them. We've all got them. Those things in our lives in which we are out of options. The situations that we face that we have no answers, the things that make us fearful and anxious and overwhelmed, the things that we literally have no resources to handle. What is it that you need from God in those moments for those situations? You need God's wisdom and God's power. Wisdom to know the right thing to do, power to do the right thing. You need to ask for it. 
you do not have because you do not ask. And, and here's, here's what's really interesting to me. You're never going to believe this. In 1 Corinthians 1.24, don't turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul is talking about Christ. And he's talking about Christ's role in the plan of salvation. And guess what Paul calls Christ? Guess what he calls Paul? Or guess what Paul calls Christ? Guess what he calls him? He calls him the wisdom and power of God. Unbelievable. Meaning what? Meaning, the greatest manifestation of God's wisdom and power is located in His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, what that means is, if you want wisdom and power in your lives, the one in whom you are to seek it is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He is the ultimate source of the wisdom and strength and power that you need for everything in your lives. And here's the thing, if you want that power available to you, if you want that power at your disposal, if you want that power channeled to you, that wisdom and power channeled to you, there is but one source from which you must get that wisdom and power, and it is the very book that you're holding in your hands. But the second reason why God is a treasure to be trusted and prized. Look at verse 21. It says that God is the one who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and understanding to those who have insight. Did you see that? God changes times and seasons. What does that mean? You know what it means. God directs the affairs of human history, doesn't he? God is the one responsible for the shifting of entire civilizations. The Aztecs, the Egyptians, the Greeks, the Civil War, the British Empire, the Great Depression, baby boomers and millennials, all of it, all of it determined and governed by God. But that's not all. Kings and rulers, what does the text say? God removes kings and he sets up kings. They are all, every single one of them, appointed by God. And when God determines that their time is finished, they are removed by God. Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Julius Caesar, Lincoln, Hitler, Stalin, Reagan, Obama, Trump, and Kim Jong-un of North Korea, they are all appointed by God. And when God decides that it is over for them, he removes them. That is what the text says. Which means you must view, I must view, we must view everything in our lives as very intentional. According to the sovereign purpose of God, he has brought you here to this exact moment in your lives. So there's even a sense of destiny about this moment in your lives which has been planned and prepared by God before the foundation of the world. Don't you see? The masterpiece of history is made up of countless individual brushstrokes. And the events in your lives are those individual brushstrokes. And so you must view every event in your lives in the grand context of what God is doing in human history. And what God is doing in human history is obtaining a bride of redeemed souls for his son from every nation. And your lives are a part of that story. 
no matter what is happening in your lives, even at this moment, I'm going to say something bold here. It is from God. And it is for your good. The third reason, we're getting close here, the third reason why God is a treasure to be trusted and prized, verse 22, it says, He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with Him. I love this. God, Daniel's praise here comes in two parts. He says that God is the one who reveals the deep and hidden things. You think about it. Every secret and every mystery in history got solved because God is the one who determined that they would be discovered. Gravity, electricity, E equals MC squared, the Trinity, how to conquer death, how to get your sins forgiven. Every single mystery ultimately came to light and was discovered because God is the one who desired it to be discovered. And you have to understand that the greatest mystery of all, get this now, this is very important, the greatest mystery of all that God revealed is located in his son. Did you know that? Because you have to understand, the coming of Jesus Christ literally solves the deepest dilemma in the universe. Do you know what the dilemma is? How do wrath-deserving rebels get reconciled to God as the treasure of their soul? That's the dilemma. That's the dilemma. Because you know, you know that... The world, the human race, is born separated by an infinite chasm, a bottomless abyss of meaninglessness and hopelessness. All the while, the wrath of God burns against us. We did not love God. We did not want God. We were blind, dead, damned, and helpless. And then God, in his mercy, intervened. How did he do so? by coming to the earth that he created to save the very people that sinned against him. That's the deepest mystery in the universe and the New Testament calls it what? It calls it the gospel. My question is, do you, do you believe the gospel? Do you really? I'm not trying to question you or make you doubt unnecessarily or have, be overly introspective, but this is a question we have to stare ourselves right in the mirror and ask very soberly, do I actually believe the thing that I've been hearing my entire life? Or is this just cultural? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Have you embraced the gospel, the deepest mystery in the universe? But the second reason why Daniel praises God, look at the end of verse 22, it says that God knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. In other words, that's just a fancy way to say that God knows everything. God has infinite, intuitive, inexhaustible knowledge of everything perfectly from all eternity. And think about it, we commonly, regularly consult experts in their field to help us with our lives, do we not? Doctors, lawyers, architects, car mechanics. 
We, we, we want what's inside their heads so that we can live healthier, happier lives. And you see, here's the thing, is that God's area of expertise is transforming people's lives through his son and running the universe with absolute ease. We should desperately want what's inside his head so that we can live satisfied lives that put him on display and broken record. I know but where that knowledge and wisdom is found is found in the sacred text of Holy Scripture. Brings us finally, we're two minutes away here, to the interrogation and confession. The interrogation and confession in your notes, verses 24 through 30. It's the next day, it's the next morning, and obviously time is of the essence here. The today is execution day. Daniel and hundreds of these men in this religious wisdom guild are about to be executed. And so Daniel bursts into the executioner's office. Ariok, do not kill the wise men. I have the interpretation. Bring me to the king, which he does in a real hurry. He brings Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar's oval office. And, and, and notice, by the way, Ariok's shameless self-promotion. Did you notice this when, when the scripture was read? Look at verse 26 or uh, 25. Ariok says, I have found a man from the exiles of the Jews who shall make known to the king the interpretation. Wait, he found Daniel? He found him? No, 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 no. Daniel came to him. But you see, we get it. We get it in a cutthroat place like Babylon. You look for job security any way you can get it. And obviously he has the king's attention. Nebuchadnezzar asks Daniel in verse 26. He says, are you able to make known to me the dream and its interpretation? Very straightforward, very direct. And I love Daniel's reply because it's so gutsy. Essentially, Daniel says, um, actually, no, I can't do what the king is asking. In fact, no one on the face of the planet, no wise man or sage or prophet or conjurer or sorcerer or, or palm reader can do what the king is asking. And I can't imagine with the king's temper that there was much of a pause between verses 27 and 28. And, and, but I want you to notice what Daniel's doing here. There's, there's a lesson for us here. You see, Daniel seizes an opportunity to display the supremacy and preeminence of God because unlike Arioch, the executioner of the king who schmoozed the king with unashamed self-promotion, Daniel does the opposite of that. Look at verse 28. No, I can't do what you're asking, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to the king what shall happen in the end of days. Your dream and the visions of your head on your bed are this. Did you hear what he said? Itai Allah bishmayah. There is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven, he says. There is a God in Babylon. There is a God in the DFW. There is a God in your lives who can and must be trusted. There is a God in your lives that deserves your allegiance. There is a God in your lives who alone satisfies the human soul. There is a God in your lives insanely interested in transforming your lives through Jesus Christ. My question for you this morning is, do you trust him? 
Not do you merely intellectually affirm his existence. Do you trust him to do what he does best, namely run the universe with absolute ease? Does he have your allegiance? Do you love his son with unparalleled affection? My question is, where do you stand right this minute with the God who knows all and sees all and controls it all? Because as we'll see next week, when the dream is explained, we see loud and clear, this is a God who can and must be trusted. Let's pray. Oh Lord, the things in this text are too high for us. We cannot attain to them. They're too big for us, oh Lord. We look up at the majesty in this text, oh Lord, and we want desperately to experience this. We desperately want the vision of you that Daniel had, oh Lord, and we're just, we're just beggars. Beggars with our empty tin cups needing your grace, needing your help, Lord. We, we fail, and yet, Lord, those are the very kind of people you want, the very kind of people, oh Lord, that are of interest to you, those who are needy, those who admit that they cannot do this thing on our own, that the Christian life is impossible. So we come to you, Lord. We come to you as spiritual cripples and beggars of grace knowing that you are generous. You are lavishly, over-the-top, generous with people. You love people. You love the people that you have saved, and you love to put yourself on display so that we bless you like Daniel did. And we declare that your name is to be praised from eternity and until eternity. So we're asking, Lord, we're asking that you would sustain us. I pray that you would encourage these people here this morning. Encourage them with your glory. Encourage them with your grace. Strengthen them in their lives, in the trenches of their lives, in which it's really hard to remember what your word says and how to apply it. I pray that you would intervene in their lives, just as you did for Daniel and his comrades. Strengthen us, O Lord so that we might live lives that put you on display. In Christ's name, amen.